Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. How good or bad you are at something will get you a nickname in law enforcement. I've got a friend down in South Georgia. She crashed her squad car into not one, but two state patrol cars during the same incident. They were brand new state patrol cars. They call her crash to this day. Now keep in mind, that was about 25 years ago every card, most invitations, most emails, they will address her as Crash. When I was working for the Crime Commission, they assigned me to Operation Weed and Seed through the Atlanta Police Department. My partner, A.B., and I, we worked in the most dangerous, violent neighborhoods in Atlanta at that time, which was Zone 3. We worked Thomasville Heights, Inglewood Manor, and Mechanicsville. There was a pretty dangerous drug dealer there who had the nickname Geronimo. Well, unbeknownst to me, he had given me a nickname. And one afternoon, I was working, like I always did, pretty much by myself, all times, day and night. So this little fella ran up to me and he said, hey, living with seven. And I said, well, hey, buddy. And he took off. And I thought, living with seven? I thought that's such strange. And then this kept happening with different people. And I asked my partner, A.B., I was like, what are they saying? She said, I have no idea. So this went on for a little while. And I thought, I'm going to have to ask somebody because I'm not able to figure it out. I went up to one of my folks in the neighborhood that I'd known really since before I even got out there as part of my official capacity. And I asked him, why are they calling me living with seven? And he said, they're calling you Snow White. So eventually, the longer I worked, they dropped the living with, and I just was called seven. So there's a lot of folks in this one pocket of eight years of my career. That's how they know me, and that's how they will still refer to me. Clay Bryant earned his nickname, Cold Case Clay, because he's just that good at solving old cases. There's even a joke that in the state of Georgia, if you kill somebody, don't throw them in a well because Clay will find you and arrest you for it. <laughs> Again, these nicknames, these monikers, a lot of times it's because you might have messed up something, but sometimes it's just because you're the best there is at it. Last week, y'all heard from Chief Clay Bryant in the Gwendolyn Moore case where a woman had been murdered and thrown in a well. Remarkably, Chief had a second case where a body had been thrown in a well. This was absolutely a career feature stamp of legendary status. Chief, welcome back to Zone 7. Well, thank you again, Cheryl, for the invitation, actually. 
I've so enjoyed talking about the last one, and maybe I maybe folks would like to hear this one. It's it's a wonderful case. I say a wonderful case. It's a tragic case, actually. It came to us because of the first case. We had finished this case, just finished it up, and got a, a, a fair amount of publicity from it. Within a couple of months, Peach Candelacus had just bought a brand new Dodge pickup truck. I mean, University of Georgia Red, you know, he's a Georgia alum. And he, uh, a storm came through, a, a summer storm that was kind of uh, out of character. And, but it did a fair amount of damage, knocked the power out, and it blew a huge top out of a pine tree in Pea's yard right across his new pickup truck. Squashed it flat as a pancake. And, uh, of course, he was in the office. Within the next day, he was whining about the truck. And he said, well, I don't know. I guess well, I need to get somebody to look at it. And I said, well, Pete, let's take it over to Tim Wilkerson at uh, West Georgia Paint Body. Well, we got Pete's truck. The top's not completely off of it. <laughs> He's sitting in it. And away we go over to the body shop. It looked like something with the coal hanes coming down the road, you know. And uh, we got there, and we talked, and they talked about the insurance and taking care of the truck and this and that, and the fact it was probably totaled. And at the end of the conversation, Tim Wilson says, is there any way y'all could look into my dad's case? And I, I knew of the Fred Wilson case, but I never had any involvement in it. He said, you know, they were just, we never felt like it got what it deserved. I knew there had always been some speculation about uh, his involvement with a lady and this and that. and uh, But I, di I didn't know the particulars of it. I looked at Pete, and Pete says, yeah, if you'd like for us to, we'd look at it again. Clay will look at it. I told him, I said, I'd like to come and sit down with you, and you tell me what you know. Tell me some history about it, you know, about what was going on. And God, it was so enlightening when I, when I did that. And he told me of the family's lives and this and that, and it was, you know, a book in itself. And he told me that there was a young lady that had come forth, the lady that he'd been involved with. She had enticed Fred. You know, there's a thing that I, I call the savior syndrome that some people get drawn into. They find it, especially people people in law enforcement, uh, EMS service, fire service, those people, those types of people are especially drawn in. Uh, Tim's dad was the fire chief of the volunteer fire department at Ware Crossroad in Troop County. He had gotten he, at work. He uh, There's a lady that came to work in, in their office and she started having, you know, one tragedy after another, and her and her husband were having trouble and this and that. And all of a sudden, I think Fred makes it his business to try to rescue her. Let me be clear for everybody. We're talking about Fred Wilkerson, 49-year-old truck driver who vanished November of 1987. So you get hooked up on this case May of 2003. That's correct. He vanished in '87. On Thanksgiving night was the last time anybody saw Fred Wilkerson alive. His car was found at the Atlanta airport with uncashed payroll checks in it, that kind of thing. And I, how he came to this conclusion, I, I guess it's because of no contact. 
But there was a tremendous amount of conjecture of what had happened and why, and you know, his relationship with this woman that had gone sour. Fred was never seen again. There was some situations where some folks in Las Vegas said they thought him, they thought they'd seen him getting onto an elevator, and you know, just ghost sightings. You know how people are sometimes, and we've all run into them. I know you have, Cheryl, where a person interjects himself into something they know nothing about. You know, you could say, "Hey, somebody robbed a train downtown last night," and. It's, some fool will say, I saw the whole damn thing. Absolutely. And then there you have to, and, and to dispel it, you've got to go down that road because if you don't, it's going to come to you at trial. Anyway, so it rocked along for seven years. Fred's gone, no contact. So the woman he had been involved with, that the situation was out. She files to have him declared dead because she has a vested interest in it. She had an insurance policy on it. For whatever reason, that didn't raise any red flags. Well, let's go over some of those flags again. So you're telling me he vanishes before Thanksgiving, doesn't show up for Christmas. His car is found a month after he's last seen alive with at least two uncashed paychecks? That's right. Payroll checks, too. Totaling about a thousand dollars. Okay, well, who gets on an airplane to go start a new life and doesn't take their last thousand dollars? <laughs> I have no idea, <laughs> but for some reason, that became the story that law enforcement went with. And then on top of that, the insurance. I mean, I'm sorry, but you're getting paid out an insurance policy on a man that you haven't known that long, and they were not married, correct? No, no, but they had they had actually been in and out of a relationship. She had divorced and he he had divorced and she was the kind of person, not just with Fred, but with other people. She would draw them into some type of scheme or this or that, and she tried to control their finances and that type of thing. And everything in the world you would I would think that would be glaring to say, yeah, boys, y'all need to look at run this into the ground. But that, it, it never did. And uh, in talking with Tim, he tells me, he says, uh, Mr. Clay says, one of the girls that I went to school with, she actually, when the uh, probate action to have him declared dead was going on, it came out in the newspaper, of course. She saw the, the, the article. Well, she was living in Goose Creek, South Carolina. Well, Tim told me that. I said, what happened? It took place. She contacted Tim, who contacted Tim's attorney, who contacted law enforcement, and said, this girl says that she, on Thanksgiving weekend, the day after Thanksgiving, was contacted by this woman, Connie Quedens, to pick her up at the airport. She had to take some folks up there that had come to visit her. And this is the person that Fred was in, had this situation with. Now, here's the kicker. Fred, on earlier in that week, or in the latter part of the week before, he had borrowed money to put a swimming pool and finish some work at that house. Well, alone went in default because Fred had... They had worked together at the job, and she demanded Fred leave that job, and he did, and he went to work for fast food merchandise. Again, everything in the world, to me, pointed straight at her. 
And don't get me wrong now, she was interviewed and she always had a story and this and that. And this was it would have been in 1995 or was in 1995. And this should have been the straw that broke the camel's back when this girl comes up and says, she called me and I picked her up that morning after Fred disappeared at the airport. For whatever reason, it never went anywhere. And uh, Tim told me that one day about lunchtime. The next day, I'm in Goose Creek, South Carolina, talking to her. And she lays it out. I come back. I talk with Pete about what we got. He said, Jesus. Now, she had two kids. They were, went to school. They And all these kids, you know, they were in uh, socially, uh, acquaintances and they went to each other's homes and this and that and they're 16, 17 years old. She immediately starts getting these kids to start dragging debris and stuff, throw it in the well and tries to set it on fire. But of course, there ain't no oxygen down there, so all it does is smolder. So that all that's taking place in 1987 in 88. And she's telling me the story now in 95. Uh, I'm sorry, in 2002. But this she came forth with this story in 95. We rarely hear about a cold case being solved nowadays that doesn't involve DNA or ancestry. Connecting these dots with that type of evidence seems to be pretty much now standard operating procedure. But Clay Bryant, has solved not one, but two cold cases with no DNA, no murder weapon, no footprints, no fingerprints, no new witnesses, no deathbed confessions. He became an expert in solvability factors. He would look at what he had and instantly know what he needed to push that case into the end zone. Clay's gift is being able to talk to people and pull information out of them that nobody's ever heard. To stack that information in just this pyramid of justice, he does it better than anybody. And a lot of times when people say, what is the best tool I can work on to have as a cold case investigator? I tell them, talking. Can you talk to people? Do people instinctively trust you? Do they want to be around you? Clay Bryant is the best I've ever seen. I get a guy that she, who she did the same thing with. She gets him, says, we need to go into a business together. And she gets to finance and she gets him to, with a piece of equipment he had to finish filling in the well. I was told that. So I contact him and he said, the well's right here, chief. He said, you see that clump of bushes out there? And of course, she fell out with this guy and she took his money and uh, tried to take his equipment and everything. And he said, right out there where that clump of bushes is, because we had ridden over there. And he said, that's where the well is. With the information that the young lady had given me, went to a judge and we got a search warrant to excavate that well. We got there that morning. She had another guy in the house then that she had gotten <laughs> to come down and the business with. And I never forget what he said. I, I knocked on the door and myself and uh, Captain Grizzle with the sheriff's office. He went, he was with me. And, 
He says, uh, Miss Connie's not here right now. She's gone to town to involved in her Christian work. Well, Connie gets back from her Christian work. I tell her, Connie, we have a search warrant and we're going to search your property. Well, it's already been done before. Everybody's always looked and said, you know, this and that. I said, but we're going to look a little closer this time. We're sitting there with a track hole and a, <laughs> and a dozier and sitting out there on a low boy. And I said, we're going to start at that well on top of the hill. And she says, if he's in it, I don't know anything about it. Well, Chief, I got to ask you something. Did you look at that man and think to yourself, buddy, you got no idea. I just saved your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he stayed in the game long enough, the, the thing that, that got Fred was, you know, because that loan went into default, he filed a suit against her. And I kind of got lost in my conversation, and, uh, but he filed a suit against her. And like the first part of the week, it was served on her. Well, the weekend, the uh, uh, girl, that, who, her name was Lisa Holdeman. Connie had gotten her father and mother to come down from West Virginia, where they had lived earlier, because she wanted to help them get into a business. Uh, Mr. Holdeman, he saw this thing about the money and her control and whatnot, so that he opted out of that. But they still remained, you know, friends, To I guess you'd say. Lisa Holdman, it has just amazed her, you know, that Connie still would want to be involved in their business and everything. The, the weekend that Fred disappeared, her husband that he she had brought back into the scene and the boys, they were all supposed to go to Florida to visit a relative. Well, at the last minute, she says, I'm going to stay here. I got to work. And she tells Lisa Holdman's mother. She said, I'm staying here. I need to protect my property. And I expect that protection came at a very high expense to Fred Wilkerson. But, Chief, my mind is just blown because every time you give us another element, another event, uh, another piece of evidence, it's like, this ain't a flag. This is a parade of flags. And and this is one of the ones that that, that I lost some friendships over is, uh, you know. You they, got a woman that wants half the money for a house. He didn't cash two payroll checks. He abandoned his car. Nobody has seen him alive ever again. They might have thought they saw him in Las Vegas from a distance, but nobody's talked to him. She had an insurance policy against him, and then she knew that he was suing her. So uh, other stuff was going to come out in deposition and whatnot. If somebody can't see that this thing was done for money, I I'm at a loss. It goes back to that thing, you know, that I said earlier. You know, I'd like, I'd like to claim being a genius for solving these cases. <laughs> but I mean, these, you know, these, and there were a couple that were a little more twisted than this. But anyway, there was, uh, in, in this case, it just made sense. And we were able, and, during, and let me tell you something. When we executed the search warrant, we find two micro cassette tapes. And those micro cassette tapes, she had, since she had uh, been, keeping them since 1987, and this is 2002. Well, one of them was later than that because she had taken her husband back, and one of those tapes were her. And I guess you, they were a trophy. In that first video, uh, micro cassette tape, she's talking to Fred Wilkerson, who had just filed a lawsuit on her. She calls him. In her words, Fred Wilkerson, you son of a bitch, I will kill you. <laughs> 
and she had that micro cassette that she had now kept for down your 20 years. And we were able to retrieve it and, and, and have it at court. And she all, we also, dealing with her husband, his name was Gary Quedens. He goes to Florida that weekend. He comes back. And in our questioning of him, he comes back. And there is a pistol laying in the floor downstairs. Of course, he picks the pistol up. The purpose of that was, was guess who's going to take the whipping for this murder if this thing gets discovered? The gun that killed him. But it never comes to be an issue. The other tape is him and her arguing about the uh, a divorce settlement. And in that tape, it says, I want my Walther pistol. And he says, Connie, there were three Walther pistols. Your Walther pistol that I sold at a gun show. The two that I bought from Marcus Smith with consecutive serial numbers I gave the boys. And the one that I sold at the gun show was one that someone may have used at Fred's time. He was straightforward with us and helped us in every way. We were able to establish a fact to a moral certainty that he was in Florida during the time that Fred Wilkinson was probably killed. But sometimes you have to make a deal with the devil to get the witch, you know. There is nothing better than making that call when a cold case finally has an arrest made. Once that detective has the person in custody and takes them to jail and they are able to call that family or go by and visit in person and tell them the person that murdered their loved one has been arrested is a powerful thing. It is often career-defining. It's the reason you do what you do in a cold case squad. This is the trophy. This is the end result. This is the gold medal. This is what it's all for. All the sleepless nights, all the 18-hour days, not being able to get it out of your mind for 20 years, 30 years. This is what it's for. Now, didn't y'all roll out on the gurney all of his bones? At trial, you know, and I was kind of shocked we, that they let us do it. Uh, Judge Bill Lee was on the bench. And uh, as part of the evidence uh, that we brought into court, we brought Fred Wilkerson into court. Anatomically correct, with a keyhole defect in the back of his skull, and Dr. Frederick Snow with the GBI, uh, a wonderful pathologist, and he helped me in several cases, and I just can't say enough about him and Dr. Sperry. He is one of the foremost forensic anthropologists in the country. And, you know, he's excavated uh, mass graves in Bosnia and things like that. And it's just, you know, he's a tremendous asset to the GBI. And uh, eventually he, he left the GBI, I think, and went to the University of Tennessee. Well, he recognized that injury, didn't he, as an assassination? Oh, yes, sir. He's, oh, absolutely. He said, this, he said this is a classic keyhole defect in the back of the man's skull. He said he was shot at close range. He was straight up assassinated. Absolutely. And, 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 and as it found, as it came to be, back to that same thing. After he left Thanksgiving dinner with his sister and his kids, and Fred was a family guy. I mean, baseball coach. Uh, maybe not the best husband in the world, 
But baseball coach never missed a dance recital. Just you know, nothing in the the farthest thing community oriented guy. The one thing in the world it would never, no matter what happened, would he ever have just walked away from his family. We were lucky to come up with the evidence that we did. We were able to try and convict her. It was kind of a, a situation where uh, the jury went out, and I honestly think that. Uh, it was a situation where it took them longer to elect a foreman than it did to come to a guilty verdict. <laughs> in three hours, they came, they came back and... Please tell me y'all played the tape in court. We did. And, you know, it was just, it was, you know, that I got your moment, you know. Tim Wilson, his sister Tracy, and their children, they were able to bury their father, a decent Christian burial. I developed a relationship with them, and you know they're my friends. And I, you know, I've never been any prouder. Back to that thing, like with Alan Moore, I've never been any prouder than to be able to experience that with them. As tragic as it was, you know, everybody says, you know, well, you got closure. You start talking about losing your children or your parents to some absolutely unnecessary act. I don't think there's anything that you could say is ever closure, but I think it gets to a point of finality, you know? I think they got there. and It was just one of those deals. And back to this, you know, I said before about, you know, I had a couple of guys. After this case, the, uh, oh, heck, what's that outfit? The Associated Press call. And they, you know, they had a big, thing about the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a they, that's where the cold case Clay came from, was a feature article with them. There were a couple of folks that early on in this case that were attached to it. They were my friends. They never spoke to me again. The old sheriff, he even wrote a letter to Pete, said as long as I was at the DA's office, that there would not be a healthy working relationship between the DA's office and, and, and the sheriff's office. I'll never understand it. There you have it, y'all. A lifetime of studying people and places and crimes leads to solving two cold cases, giving victims' families answers and justice for the people that they love and they lost decades ago. And I want every young investigator to remember the one thing Chief said. Remember when he said he got a tip from a woman in Goose Creek, South Carolina? He was there the next day. Let me, let me tell you, one. you know, we talked about my dad. And he, had, he told me one thing. He said, son, you got to work crime when crime is. And, and it's true. It, you know, it, people might talk to you today and they might not tomorrow. You know, and just as conversely as some old cases where they change and they'll talk to you now. But. You've got to go, and you you can't say, well, we're going to schedule this next Thursday. We'll talk to this person. If you've got something, you better go talk to them today. <laughs> and my dad, you know, we talked again about everything. And this case about Connie Queden brings something to mind to me, and I, it's something I think it's just that you'll like to hear. We were riding along one afternoon, you know, we were talking about love's lost and bad decisions we made in our lives and things like that. and and. He looked at me and he smiled. He said, well, son, let me tell you. He said, and this applied to Fred Wilkerson as much as anybody that I've ever heard in my life. 
He said, let me tell you. He says, you know, love is but a dewdrop from heaven. Problem is, some days it'll just soon fall on a horse turd and had a geranium. <laughs> uh, but that was my dad. But again, thank you. I, I appreciate more than anything in the world being able to talk to you. And this book's under contract. So there'll be a story about Fred Wilkerson coming just shortly, and it'll be the Blackwood as well. All right, y'all. You got to work crime when crime is. Chief, I appreciate you so much. And I'm going to end Zone 7, like I always do, with a quote from somebody from my Zone 7. And this comes from someone that I admire greatly. Elena Burroughs, host of Crime Scene Confidential on Investigation Discovery. She's also a former crime scene investigator. Stay in the crime scene. Don't sit in your car. Don't stand outside. Stay in the scene. Wait for the chaos to clear. And in the silence, you will hear and see more than you initially did by just being physically present. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. Next week, we are going to tackle a case unlike any other in history. There has never been a case like this. So bring your pad and pencil, get some rest, hydrate, because we're going to need y'all on this one. We are taking on the case of Melissa Wolfenberger. 